Well, my friends, this then is that promised baptism of which we had spoke last week, which we saw was promised already in the Old Testament, which John the baptizer also gave expression to, right, when he said, Behold, there cometh one after me who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. And now this morning we may come to that happy day, that astonishing day when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon his church, upon God's church. And so I'd like to consider with you the when, the what, and the how, and the result of this baptism. First, let's consider the when. The when. The first point I would like to make under this heading of when, when did God pour out his spirit, is that the church was waiting and waiting expectantly. It was a waiting and an expecting church. You know that Jesus had promised his disciples that the Spirit would be poured out upon them. The disciples had watched Jesus ascend into heaven, and then they had returned to Jerusalem, and now they were waiting. And they were waiting expectantly. They were waiting in faith. Furthermore, they were waiting in prayer. You could see this in Acts 1 and verse 13. When they had entered the city, that is Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then a list of the apostles uh, takes place there. And then in verse 14, these all with one mind. In other words, they had a one, they had a, a single focus upon the promise that Jesus had made to them. And they were living every day in expectation that it would happen that day. With one mind they were waiting, says in verse 14, continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, that's interesting as well that the mention is made there of the women had joined them. In other words, this is a gathering, my friends, of, of all these people waiting and praying expectantly for the outpouring of the Spirit that had been promised them. So they're waiting in, in expectation and in prayer. But then they also have a point of order they have to resolve. A point of order, a point of church order. What had happened here, my friends, is that Judas uh, had uh, betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ and in despair had hung himself. And you can read the gruesome details as they are given to you in verse 18. But now the apostles see a need to resolve that point of order. What point of order? The church had no church order at this time. Now, it's very true that the church had no church order, such as we would find in our own Forms and Prayers book. And yet, there was an unspoken church order that I think is worth mentioning this morning. An unspoken point of order. And that is that there must be 12 apostles. There must be 12. And you can read about this in verse 22 in Acts chapter 1. So Peter stands up, verse 21, I mean. Verse 21. Peter stands up and he mentions that uh, Judas had died. And in verse 21, so that's chapter 1 and verse 21. Therefore it is necessary, says Peter, that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. You hear, don't you, that there's a sense of obligation there. There's a sense of, yeah, I'm, I'm going to call it a point of order, isn't it? There, there's something that we need to resolve here. 
And yes, it's unwritten. There was no book of church order. But Peter says in verse 21, right, therefore it is necessary. There's a point of order here that must be resolved. Now, why is it necessary that there be 12 apostles? Why is that such a big deal? Why does Peter insist that before we do anything else, yes, we're praying, we're waiting, we're looking for that outpouring of the Spirit, but we must resolve this point of order. Well, my friends, it's not stated explicitly here, but it's not difficult. It's not difficult to, to ascertain the reason for 12 apostles. And that is that this new community of Christian believers saw themselves as the continuation of the people of God. The people of God in the Old Testament were the Jewish people. The 12 tribes of the Jewish people, right, corresponding to the 12 sons of Jacob. The 12 tribes of Israel, they were the people of God. And now as we move into the new covenant, as the old covenant disappears, and as the transition is made to the new covenant of the new people of God, who are going to be, not yet, but are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, the continuation of the people of God is going to be these 12 apostles who are now going to lead and take charge of this new church, this new community, this new assembly of people. That's undoubtedly the reason for 12 apostles. I gave you that quote from Bavink there uh, on the outline. At that point, that is at this point of Pentecost, the Church of Christ was in principle detached, disconnected from Israel's national existence. Right Under the Old Covenant, if you wanted to be a, a, a member of the people of God, if you wanted to be a saved person, you had to join the people of God. Rahab could not remain in Jericho if she wanted to be a saved person. She had to leave Jericho and join the people of God. Ruth the Moabitess could not stay a Moabitess. She had to become a proselyte. She had to join the people of God. But now we see a change come, right? As Bavink says, the Church of Christ was in principle detached from Israel's national existence, from the priests and the law, the temple and the altar. It became an independent religious assembly in its own right. It now acts in the place of ancient Israel as the people indeed the church of God. Now, if you want to be saved, it simply uh, concerns you to believe in Jesus. And whatever your ethnic background may be is of no concern. So, this is the case then. Uh, why 12? And this is why Peter insists that this point of order be resolved. Well, we come then to the, to the when. Oh, we're still on the when. So we had the, the waiting and expectant church, waiting in prayer, we had the 12 apostles, but now when, because our text says in Acts 2 verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come. And here this is always very interesting to me, that we often say that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was Pentecost. And yet that's really a very, uh, uh, it, it leads to misunderstanding, because it wasn't really Pentecost. Pentecost was a feast of the Old Testament. Now I put this table on the outline, to help you uh, get in your mind this, these Jewish feasts that took place at the beginning of the year. There were two sets of Jewish feasts, those that took place at the beginning of the year and those that took place in the, in the fall of the year, we might say. But on January 1, right, they didn't call it January, but still on the first day of the year, okay, that became then the day when they began to look forward to the feasts that were coming. And on day 10, you can read about this, in the book of Exodus, I put the scripture references there for you if you'd like to follow up on those. But on day 10, 
the family had to go choose a lamb from its flock. Four days later, on day 14, was the day of Passover. That evening, that day, they would kill the lamb. And the first time, anyway, they did Passover, they had to spread the blood on the doorpost. That wasn't continued later. But the first time, when they were still in Egypt, that's what they did. They killed the lamb, put the blood on the door frames, and then that evening, that night, they would eat portions of that lamb and they would follow all the protocol for the Passover meal. Now, on the day of preparation, Jesus was crucified. So that day, when they were preparing the Passover feast, and that evening they would have eaten it from it, that's the day that Jesus was crucified. Again, you can look that up in the Gospels for when Jesus was crucified. Then, after the day, so, so you, you had the day of preparation, then that night you ate the Passover. Then the next day was day 15. Day 15 to 21, so the next seven days, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were not allowed to eat any bread with leaven in it. And of course, on that Sunday, then would have been the resurrection of Christ. Friday, killed, and Sunday, he rose again from the dead. Then 40 days later, now, the 40 days later does not correspond to anything on the Jewish calendar. But 40 days later, Jesus ascended up into heaven. You can see that in Acts 1, and verse 3. Jesus ascended up into heaven. But 50 days later, so 50 days counted from the day of Passover. 50 days later came the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. So Pentecost, my friends, is not the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And I know we often associate that. When we think of Pentecost, we think of the outpouring of the Spirit of God upon the church. The baptism with the Holy Spirit that God performed for his people, that we read about in Acts 2, took place on the day of Pentecost, on the feast of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. That's why I say it's a little misleading to say that the, that the, the outpouring of the Spirit took place and that we call that Pentecost. It's technically not Pentecost. Pentecost was a feast day, and the outpouring of the Spirit took place on Pentecost. You can see that in Acts 1, or Acts 2 and verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come. In other words, when that Jewish feast day, 50 days from Passover, came, that's the day when Jesus Christ poured out his Spirit on his church. So just a comment there about the when. And that is of some significance. I'll return to that in my application. Now the what. Because this is always very interesting to us. In the first place, we have this violent, rushing wind. And just to point out, my friends, there was no wind, right? There was only the sound of the mighty, violent, rushing wind. Why a wind? Now, again, the, the scripture does not say. So we're left to speculate. And you know that as Christians, when we are going to speculate on something, what, what the meaning of it is, if the New Testament doesn't make it clear to us, we always revert to the Old Testament. And we look, is there anything in the Old Testament that would shed some light on what might be meant by this wind, this noise of this wind? Now, when we go to Ezekiel 37, this is the chapter, by the way, remember when the valley was full of the dry bones. And all those bones come together. The leg bones are joined to the foot bones, to the hips and to the, to the backbone and the skull. And all these bones are joined together, but they're still just bones. They've come together. But then there's that verse in Ezekiel 37, verse 9. Then he said to me, that is God said to the prophet Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. And breath, it's the same Hebrew word for wind. 
So he could very well say, prophesy to the wind. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath or the wind, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they come to life. Now, my friends, I would say that that prophecy that you have in Ezekiel 37 of all those dry bones coming to life again was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And there again, you know, I, I just said the day of Pentecost, right? I mean, we're, we're so used to saying that now. So I'm just going to continue that language just because that's what we're used to. But you understand now what I've said about that. At any rate, on the day of Pentecost, these dry bones come together and the wind of God, the breath of God fills them with breath. And they live, they stand on their feet, and they're full of the Spirit of God. So perhaps that's the meaning of the wind. What about the tongues? So these tongues of fire, and again, no fire, right? Tongues as of fire, they looked like fire. Tongues of fire, and we're told in Acts 2, right, in Acts 2, that these tongues were distributed. So if you look in verse 3, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves. Now the language given us in verse 3 there appears to be that, that there was one fire, as it were, that then divided itself up, distributed itself. And each of these, each of these tongues of fire from the one unit distributed themselves to each of the believers there. And notice the text makes very clear, right? that there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Every one of them had a tongue of fire upon them. Not one was excluded. Again, remember, this is a baptism with the Holy Spirit, right? This is not, this is not a, the Spirit here and there a little, right? This is a, a flood of the Spirit that comes down upon these people. And so each one receives the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the meaning then of these, these tongue-like appearances of like fire upon each person. Well, this, my friends, could very well relate to the glory cloud of God. You'll remember that the glory cloud, that fiery cloud of God came down upon the tabernacle. Later, it came down upon Solomon's temple. And furthermore, when you read about in Ezekiel, the presence of God comes down upon Ezekiel's temple as well. We considered that last year. And is it possible that this fiery glory cloud of God now does not come down upon any building. But each part of it rests upon each of the believers. And now each of the believers is a temple of God. And of course, Paul uses that language later, doesn't he? He calls each believer a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so that this glory cloud of God now does not come down upon a place, but it comes down upon each of the believers in that assembly showing that God's presence, God's spirit, is now upon each of these people. The languages, the tongues. Now this is, this is fascinating, isn't it? Notice that it says in verse 5, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. My friends, these are diaspora Jews, right? These are not Jews who grew up in Palestine. Remember when we talked about uh, deacons, right? And we said that the widows of the Hellenistic Jews, right? Those Jews who were not born in Palestine were being neglected. Well, here you have another reference to these Jewish people who undoubtedly have come to the Feast of Pentecost. Again, the Old Testament Jewish Feast of Pentecost, right? That required a trip to the temple to bring your, uh, the first fruits of your harvest. 
Well, they had all assembled in Jerusalem. And as they are there performing their, the, the ritual of worship that they're performing for the Feast of Pentecost, they hear this, this noise, right? And not the noise of the wind, right? But they hear this noise of people speaking. What is this? Right? And, and, and as curious people are, they, they run. They run to the source of this noise. They see this group of believers, right, of about 100 people. They're there. And they're, they're speaking. And they're all speaking at the same time. They're all just speaking through each other. But now, and here's a person from Egypt, and he comes to that crowd listening to this, and suddenly he hears it. So somebody is speaking Egyptian. And another person from Libya comes. He hears somebody speaking in Arabic. And a person from, from Syria or whatever country comes. And throughout all the confusion and noise of people speaking, why he hears somebody speaking in the Syrian language. And he can stop, and he can, he can draw closer to that person, and he hears him speaking and preaching the great acts of God. Notice what we have in Acts 2, uh, that the, these people are amazed and astonished, and, uh, and all the different nationalities are given there in verse 9 and in verse 10. And in verse 11, it says, we hear them in our own tongues or our own languages, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So they're not just speaking about anything. They're preaching and proclaiming the great acts of God's salvation that he's performed on behalf of his people. They're preaching. This is a sermon that they're giving. And yes, all these people are preaching at the same time. To the, to the ear, it just sounds like a mass of confusion. But again, as these people begin to divide up, they begin to hear somebody speaking in the Hebrew tongue, another in the Syrian tongue. And in all these different languages, the Persian language, they hear it being spoken. And they can go, they can draw near to that person. And they can sit and they can hear preaching of the mighty acts of God. These are real languages, aren't they? This is not the kind of tongue speaking that Paul's going to talk about later in the book of Corinthians, right? Which were not real languages. These are people who are given the immediate gift of speaking in real, actual languages that people understood. It's a reversal, isn't it, of the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, the languages were confused, and people had to draw apart. But here you have a reversal. The Spirit of God comes down, and the curse of Babel is temporarily removed. And immediately people can speak in languages that they never studied and that they never learned. And others can hear the great acts of God being preached in their own language. It's an astonishing thing, isn't it? You can, you can fully understand why these people are uh, just struck with amazement at what's taking place here. I move to the how. My friend, I just want to make a, a very quick point here on the how. I can't resist making this point because, again, we'll, we notice, and I've said it so many times already, that this is a baptism of the Spirit of God. A baptism of the Spirit of God. And yet, if you would turn with me to Acts 2 and verse 17... I hope to consider Peter's sermon in more detail next week. But just if we can notice that the baptism of the Spirit that we have here is given us in verse 17 as a pouring. Verse 17, Acts 2 and verse 17, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. And it's uh, repeated again in verse 18. I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit. And then again in verse 33, at the end of the sermon, Peter says, 
Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So this baptism evidently takes place under the, the, uh, the mode of a pouring. In other words, something from above is being poured out upon the people and it's coming down from above on and onto them. This is called a baptism. And so when our Baptist brothers and sisters want to insist that a baptism can only take place by being plunged into something, I think that they, they stand on pretty weak ground here because the scripture explicitly calls this a baptism and it very explicitly teaches us that it is a pouring, right? That this is one possible mode in which baptism can take place, that water can be poured or sprinkled upon person from above. Now, the Baptists make a good point when they say, well, yes, but this is, this is the whole idea here is that there's a lot of water, right? And, and that's certainly a point that we need to hear, right? The whole point of this is that the, Bapt the Spirit comes down in a, in a flood, right? So maybe that teaches us then when we baptize, we should use as much water as we can, right? When we sprinkle, right? And, and don't just drop a few drops on the forehead. If we want to be close to what the Scripture says, we should use a lot of water, right? But still, the Scripture clearly gives us, and this is, why in the Reformed churches we don't insist on a full immersion, right, of being dipped or plunged into water. We would say that people who pour or sprinkle from the top are even more accurately capturing and picturing the, uh, the reality of what is given us here in Acts chapter 2. Now, again, I don't want to dwell on that point, but I, did want, I didn't want to slide past that either. That is an important point for us to remember. So I move then to the result. In my fourth point, the result. What is the result of this baptism with the Holy Spirit? Baptism with the Holy Spirit. This is such an important point, my dear friends. If you come with me to verse, if you come with me to verse 22. So Peter has begun his sermon in verse 14. He's quoted from the prophet Joel in those verses, and he's explained. He's quoted extensively from prophet Joel. But then in verse 22, we see the thrust of this sermon. Men of Israel, listen to these words. And what's that next word? I, I, I know we don't do this in this church, but I almost feel like we should say it all together. Jesus, Jesus, the Nazarene. Men of Israel, says Peter, listen to these words. Look at what the Holy Spirit has done. Look at the Holy Spirit. Look at how he's taught us to speak. No, 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 no. Jesus of Nazareth. The focus is not on the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has done amazing things in their midst. The noise of the wind, right? The fiery tongues appearing on each person. The language is spoken. But none of that does Peter focus on. None of that does Peter focus on. He says, this has been prophesied by the prophet Joel. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. Jesus is the one, my friends, that Peter wants to focus on. And the whole rest of this sermon is all about Jesus, right? He talks about how Jesus was, uh, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, was nailed to a cross. He quotes again uh, from the Old Testament, this time from David, a, a, a proof text from David, and he, he continues to speak about the crucifixion of Jesus. He talks about his resurrection. He talks about his ascension, his being exalted to the right hand of God. 
And then the therefore. The verse 36, the grand climax of the sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, my friends, you, it would be so perfectly in order with our way of thinking for Peter to have said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know this is a work of the Spirit of God. This is the Holy Spirit. Now look at this, these languages being spoken. Look at the sound of the wind blowing through this assembly. Look at those fiery tongues. Look at them, people. Don't you see those fiery tongues on the, on the head of each person? But no, it's as if Peter, not that he doesn't think those are important, or that he dismisses them all, but his focus is a single focus on Jesus Christ, that this baptism with the Holy Spirit was meant to bring us as an assembly here to the feet of the cross of Jesus Christ. So the grand result of the baptism of the Spirit is to bring people to Jesus, not to bring them to the Holy Spirit. Now, in, in no way does, is this derogatory to the Spirit, right? In no way is this reflecting poorly on the Spirit. Jesus himself said that the work of the Spirit, remember we read that after the law today, that the work of the Spirit is to take of the things of Christ and to disclose them to you. Now, Peter knows that. Peter understands that. And therefore, he says, this baptism is not meant to focus us on the Spirit of God. In fact, the Spirit of God himself would not intend that. The Spirit of God intends to bring us to Jesus. I, I think the whole sermon, my friends, is summed up in those words. Men of Israel, in verse 22, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. That is the result of this baptism. And again, we can read as we continue. We didn't read this together, but in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And Peter says to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit. Is that what he says, children? No, no. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's the result, my friends, of this of this baptism. Well, I come to my applications then. The first application is the work of the Spirit of God. What is the work of the Holy Spirit, my friends? And here I just want to go back to John 16. It's so important that we see this because in John 16, Jesus himself taught us. Let me read those words again that I read already uh, after the reading of the law. But in John 16 and verse 14, Jesus says that he, the Spirit of truth is going to come. And he says, He will glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he, that is the Holy Spirit, takes of mine and will disclose it to you. That is the work of the Spirit. My friends, the work of the Spirit is to bring us to Jesus. And this is one, again, a point of, of caution that we would share with our, our Pentecostal brethren and our Assemblies of God brethren. That is, too often in their assemblies and in their worship, the focus tends to be on the Spirit of God. And again, we, we must take issue with that. Because that is not the purpose of the work of the Spirit. The Spirit does not bring us to worship himself. Now, should we worship the Spirit? Certainly, he's God. And in that sense, he's deserving of worship. But the Spirit himself, as it were, would take that spotlight and turn it to the second person of the Holy Trinity. That's where the Spirit of God wants us to focus. 
That's who he wants us to be baptized in the name of. That's who he wants to bring us to the feet of. The Spirit of God brings us to Jesus. And I bring you back again to that table I put on the front of the outline there, my friends. Because the outpouring of the Spirit of God means nothing apart from the Passover. And of course, the Passover, the, the slaying of that lamb, is just a picture, a type of the death of Jesus Christ himself. And these two things, my friends, must always be kept connected, must always be joined together. The Spirit of God takes us back to the Passover. The Spirit of God takes us back to that Feast of Unleavened Bread. The exodus out of Egypt. And not just, my friends, that we look at that as an interesting point of history, what we find in the Old Testament, that Jesus died on Passover. He resurrected during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? And 50 days later, the Spirit of God was poured out on the Feast of Weeks, on the, on the Feast of Pentecost. But that is meant to teach us that those two things are to be inseparably joined together. The work of the Spirit bringing us to believe, to take hold of the work of Jesus Christ. What a blessing, my friends, just as under the old covenant. If the Feast of Weeks, if the Feast of Pentecost would lead us back to that Passover table where we see that broken, bloody lamb, where we see that blood smeared on the doorposts, that, my friends, is the work of the Spirit of God in the life of God's children. To take them back to see the blood. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's the hymn the Spirit of God would bring to you this morning. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That is the work of the Spirit of God. I come in my second point to speak about the work of preaching. The work of preaching, because Peter preaches a sermon here. And what is the work of preaching, my friends? The same thing. It's the same story, isn't it? If it's the work of the Spirit of God to bring us to the blood of Christ, then the work of the preacher is to bring sinners, converted, believing sinners, or unconverted, unbelieving sinners. It's all the same. To bring them to the blood of Christ. To bring them to that holy Passover feast. And to see the Lord Jesus Christ crucified, broken for us. That's the work of the preacher. It always strikes me when I go to the classes meetings where we have to examine a student. Because, my friends, you ought to see how closely the classes ministers listen for how that preacher will take the sermon to Jesus. That's how they judge preaching. The ministers in our classes are very, I'll even say it, they're very strict on that. They're very strict on that. How does this sermon bring the believer to Jesus? How does it bring even an unbeliever to Jesus? Now, that doesn't mean that the topic of every sermon is Jesus, right? It doesn't mean that the topic of every sermon is the cross of Christ or the resurrection of Christ or anything like that, right? But it does mean, my friends, that no matter what we're preaching on, everything is resolved and fixed at the cross of Christ, if I may put it that way. Everything comes, everything centers in it, like, like, the, like the spokes on a wheel, right? They all come together in that hub. And in that sense, no matter what topic is being preached on, it all comes to its resolution in Jesus Christ. And any preaching that fails to do that, right, is what we call then just mere moralistic preaching. Right? It's preaching that just preaches obligations. You should control your anger. 
right? Here's how to find joy in your life. Well, those are all great sermon topics, my friends. Just so long as it goes to this way, men of Israel, right? Men of the Covenant United Reformed Church, men and women of any church, listen to these words, Jesus, the Nazarene. That's where it has to come. Every sermon and every time we preach. It's one of the frustrations of, of much of preaching that you find today, my friends, is that the sermon will end in something other than Christ. It often ends in our own efforts. We need to go out and witness to the lost. We need to go out and do this. We need to do this church program. We need to feed the hungry. All, again, very important things. But they all have to bring us and lead us to Christ. Where was Jesus in this sermon? I remember when I was first started preaching back at my old church, there was one elder especially who would come after me. If my sermon wasn't Christ-centered, boy, did he, he get after me about that. Every sermon had to, had to end in Christ. And uh, I thank God for him for t- uh, today, for the work that he, that he did. And that's, that's really, and especially in the Reformed Church, is something we try to focus on, that preaching brings us to Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit brings us to Christ. Again, point one and point two belong together. The only reason sermons should be Christ-centered is because the Holy Spirit is Christ-centered in all his ministry, in all his work. Then I come to my last point here of revival. Revival. And again, such an important lesson for our church, but it's the same story, my friends. It's the same story. How will we know when this church is being revived? And I'm not saying that the church isn't being revived right now. I'm not saying that. But how will we know when this church is a God-honoring, God-glorifying church? The same story. When this church comes more and more to focus on Jesus Christ. When the life of the members of this church truly becomes Christ-centered. When the prayers of this church become Christ-centered. When the parenting of this church becomes Christ-centered. When the youth ministry, when the adult ministry, when any ministry of this church. When we individuals, as individuals before God, become Christ-centered. With our eye focused on Jesus. Now, when I was thinking through this point, my friends, really all three of these points, because they're all really just the same point, aren't they? My mind went back to the, to the preaching of David Brainerd. And I want to end the sermon by just, by just bringing this story to you. David Brainerd was a missionary preacher in New England, in our own nation, to the Indians, <clears throat> to the Native Americans who lived on the United States on the frontier. And he was a missionary to them. Now, God blessed his ministry in a marvelous way. And really, in an unbelievable way. You can still find today the diary of David Brainerd. It's easily accessible, and you can read that book. It's just amazing uh, what God did through the ministry of this man. But he made a comment in his diary about the preaching that he did there. And again, I want to bring this to your attention. Because he said that when he came amongst the Indians, he found these people very much a savage people. They were completely completely uncivilized. Marriage was virtually non-existent. Wives were traded around like cattle. Drunkenness was a terrible problem. There was, there was of course, the murder and the theft, right, that went on between the tribes. Uh, all the things that we know were true of Indian life. But when 
David Brainerd came to these people, he began to preach Christ. And he makes a great point of that. He says, when I came amongst these people, I preached to them two things. I preached to them the depravity of their own hearts, their lost condition by nature, their lostness in sin. And I preached the glory and the beauty, the sufficiency of Christ to save them from their sin. And not much else, he says. I didn't even preach much beyond that. I preached they're lost in sin. There is salvation in Christ. And I called them to repentance and I called them to faith in Christ. And he says, to be honest, he says, and he's not against this kind of preaching, but he says, to be honest, I didn't even preach much on moral reform. He didn't even say much about drunkenness or about the sin of adultery. But he says, as the Spirit of God began to work, these moral reforms began to happen on their own. He says it was amazing to see how people began to observe the seventh commandment especially. And he says the sin of drunkenness just flat out disappeared. And the temptation to strong drink completely was, was eliminated. Amongst the Indians where he was preaching. He says it was wonderful to see how the families of these Indians would gather for prayer. Now this is almost, it's just, it's hard for us to believe this, isn't it? That these people who were so accustomed to a savage way of life began to show real gospel influences in their lives. And he says, even in families and in public, prayer began to happen. He says, the Lord's Day. It was striking what happened on the Lord's Day as these Indians who'd never heard of the concept of the Lord's Day began to keep the Sabbath day holy and began to set it apart for a day of worship. Now, I bring this to your attention, my friends, not because I'm against preaching on Lord's Day observance or on on drunkenness or on adultery, all, all that's coming right in our catechism. We have, we have a whole series of sermons that we preach on the Ten Commandments. That's all in its place is good. But just to show you that the real moral reform that happened amongst the Indians did not come by preaching on moral topics, but came through the preaching of death in Adam and life in Christ. That's what worked the moral reform amongst the Indians in David Brainerd's experience. And my friends, even though we don't uh, experience in our own days that kind of power in the ministry, and we, we pray for it, we long for days like that to come, but still the lesson applies for us today as well. That moral reform, sanctification in our life comes when we embrace Christ as the only way of salvation. And when we lay aside our own works and our own merits, and when we confess that we are lost in sin, and when we take refuge in the Savior, that is a real baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's a person who we can say, he's been baptized. He may have been baptized in water. She may have been baptized in water. But this is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. When we see that person turning from themselves and turning to focus their life on Christ, that is the ministry and the work of the Spirit. And I find that so fascinating that Brainerd had that experience in his preaching on the, the frontier. We don't necessarily need to be speaking in tongues. God may give that gift again. I don't know. That's in his sovereign power. But it's not about speaking in tongues. It's not about hearing a rushing mighty wind through our, our assembly here. It's not seeing flames of fire on our head. It's knowing and believing this. Let all the house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, 
whom you crucified. May God grant that to us in his mercy. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we draw near to you again at the close of this service. Lord, we long for a work of the Spirit in our day. We are thankful, Lord, for the ministry of the Spirit that you have given us. But we long, O Lord, for a greater outpouring, for more of the ministry of your Spirit within us, so that we might cling and cleave closer to Jesus Christ. Nearer, my God, to thee, we often sing. Kneel at the cross of Jesus. And so many other hymns, Lord, that speak of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that those hymns would be our, our, in our heart and in our mouths by faith. And that we would long to live lives that are marked by our commitment to him, to follow him. That we would know for certain that this Jesus, whom our sins crucified, you, O God, has made him to be both Lord and Christ. Lord, we come to bow before him today. and Pray that you would bless and keep us then and return us also this evening. Lord, give us a good day in your house. And bless our fellowship together as believers. And may your name receive the honor and the glory from this day forth and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's turn to number 391 in the blue hymnal. 391, breathe on me breath of God. And what follows then in the four verses of 391 in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.